Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Mika Hakkinen made the first of two serious errors on Italian soil at the 1999 San Marino Grand Prix when he lost control coming out of the final corner and slammed into the barrier, throwing away the big lead he'd built up over the opening laps of the race. There were no tears this time as we'd see later in the year when he spun off at Monza, but this was a hugely costly mistake, especially as it allowed Michael Schumacher to take Ferrari's first win at Imola since 1983. As well as Hakkinen's error, Schumacher owed that success to the classic combination of some quick thinking on the Ferrari pit wall and a blistering set of mid-race qualifying laps to overhaul David Coulthard in the second McLaren, although a furious Coulthard didn't agree that that was the reason for Schumacher's win. We'll decide which side of that debate we fall on later in this episode, and joining me, Glenn Freeman, to head back to this race from early 1999, are Matt Beer and bring back V10's debutant Ben Addison, who has joined the race as our Group F1 editor. So Ben, as this is your first appearance, you have to have the traditional opening question first. So when you think back to the 1999 San Marino Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, this is very painful for me because growing up, I was a massive Damon Hill fan. Uh, he completely... Uh, encapsulated my period discovering Formula One and 1999 is the absolute nadir of my childhood watching Formula One. Where is Damon Hill? The guy that I supported is basically absent and in San Marino watching footage back, I mean, you don't really see him at all until quite near the end of the race and it was a very hard year to watch Formula One for me so I've pretty much blocked most of it out of my mind. <laughs> Which is a shame because it's a really good season but I can see why as a Hill fan you would struggle. Any 99 episode we tend to do has a Damon Hill was terrible section. Uh, we will get to Damon later and we'll put the question to Ben. We'll, we'll put him through the ringer one more time. But where was Damon Hill? Well, he was he was fourth in the end. So we'll get into why that was. Matt, you're a veteran of this by now. What's your standout memory? I'm going to go for the obvious one. And that's Hackenden landing in the wall with the slight twist that I'm pretty sure I was doing some club race reporting this weekend and I think I saw it in the cafe at Pembrey walking in in the lunch break and just seeing the McLaren going into the wall and thinking well that's quite an odd one isn't it and then getting back to report on truck racing or whatever I was putting myself through at that point yeah I was good. when you said you could see it from Pembrey I was thinking how, how big's the telescope you were using <laughs> yeah, but, lot of uh, debris. Yeah, it's very generous of Ben actually to leave the obvious one open for you as well I don't think it's very often that the the second person to answer that question gets to choose the most obvious thing. So a good start from Ben. Let's hear some suggestions from our audience as well. We had nearly 100 replies when I put this out on Twitter. And I'll be honest, because it's not that famous a race, I was a bit worried we wouldn't get very many. So apologies that we can't get through all of them. Although, as you'll hear in a moment, there was a common theme that Matt may have already hinted at, and it wasn't Pembury Truck Racing. 
There were a few mentions, that, thankfully, for Jacques Villeneuve's heroic fifth on the grid and his car then failing to get off the line, of course. Uh, so thanks to flat-spotted Mr. Liam uh, Nardinarios and Lewis Sudderby, who even apologised to me for mentioning it. Christopher Foxen says uh, this was Damon Hill's last decent F1 race before he went into his downward spiral. We'll see what Ben thinks of that later. And Henry Walter says this was the last race Damon really tried in. Greg Ankers <laughs> says, <laughs> Greg Ankers says, as a Benetton fan, seeing Fissy and Verts qualifying an awful 16th and 17th on the grid was Greg's main memory. Matthew Ponto was one of a few to mention both Minardis finishing in the top 10. And Racing Insider mentioned backmarkers costing David Coulthard victory. But among those 90-plus replies, and I've counted them all up, 57 of you chose Hakkinen's crash, and almost all of you also mentioned Murray Walker's iconic commentary over that moment. So before we go any further, let's hear how the voice of F1 reacted to Mika's crash. It's really good. <laughs> Brilliant from Murray there. Thank you for the replies to everyone. As always, we love hearing the memories that stand out to you from this era of F1 as well. And if you're looking for another way to celebrate this glorious time in F1, then check out our new Bring Back V10's merchandise range over at shop.the-race.com. You can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, water bottles and notepads featuring the Bring Back V10's logo. And we also have a second range of t-shirts out now featuring some popular colour combinations from the era that you might recognise. Those, those are my personal favourites and they were a lot of fun to put together. And thank you to Rachel for getting in touch to tell us you bought a t-shirt and a mug and we're glad to hear that you like them. We're getting ever closer to our series finale where we'll take your questions. So make sure you get those in using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And remember, if you'd like to get an exclusive bonus opportunity to submit questions and listen to new episodes early and ad-free, check out the Race Members Club, which you can sign up for at the-race.com forward slash members club. Now, let's get on to Imola 99. A big topic of discussion as F1 arrived in Imola was the fate of Honda, which appeared set to abandon its plans to enter F1 with its own team and instead become a works engine supplier to BAR. We've covered this in a lot more detail in our Honda 1999 episode and our BAR 1999 episode as well. So we won't spend too long on it here. But one thing we'll focus on is that Honda's decision upset the other teams and Bernie Eccleston because the 12th slot on the F1 grid had been reserved for Honda and by not taking up that slot it was likely to be bad news for one of the independent teams as a full set of 12 entries would have meant Toyota would have to buy into another team when it was coming in in 2002. But one of the most outspoken critics was a team boss who was already paired up with a manufacturer and a man who knew Honda all too well, and that was McLaren's 
Ron Dennis. Ron said, what they have done is wrong. Honda applied for an unusual and guaranteed assurance that they would be allowed to compete with their own car in 2000. I said they should not be given this assurance because I had the experience to say they will do what they want when they want. I don't think it is the behaviour to be expected from a multinational company. Now, we've obviously seen that Honda will do what it wants when it wants several times since 99 and 2000 as well. And Ben, this this feels like a flashback of its own, really, because it's, it's, it's familiar to be asking you questions about Honda again. Was Ron Dennis right to be so critical of Honda for changing its mind on its F1 plans when ultimately it had nothing to do with him? Yeah, I mean... That never stops Ron, does it? I mean, he always likes to stick his nose <laughs> into any business he could find, really. But um, I think fundamentally he's got a point um, in, the, in the sense that, you know, Honda are quite capricious when it comes to Formula One historically and as they've proven since. So you can't necessarily rely on them to stick to whatever agreements been made. But at the same time, tempering that, you know, the situation around that um, mooted works team you know, a, a mule car was up and running, Os Verstappen was testing. You couldn't have foreseen in, you know, a matter of weeks pr- prior that Harvey Postlethwaite would die. And that's going to send the whole project into a bit of disarray. So I can kind of understand why Honda might then change tack and rethink. Um, but at the, same, and at the same time, you know, Ron had his fingers burnt a bit by Honda back in 92 so he probably still having a long memory has a bit of an axe to grind at this point. Yeah, and we we talked at length about the potential or the theory of Postlethwaite's death uh, being the reason for the project stopping and whether that was really true. So go back, I think it's in series two, early in series two. We did a whole episode about it. Trust me, it's great. Uh, talking of engines, there were moves afoot in F1 Uh, Get this, to ban any type of engine that wasn't a V10. Sounds great. The reason for this was a fear that if one manufacturer went down a different path and got it right, it would have a big advantage and then everyone would have to develop their own versions at considerable expense. Mercedes supported the idea of locking in V10s, saying F1 was was well-balanced with everyone running V10s at this stage anyway. And Arrow's boss, Tom Walkinshaw, said, a number of teams have sketched V12s already. If one presses the button on the project, it could start another cycle where we all spend a lot of money and end up back where we started. Matt, what do you make of this then? Was it sensible from F1 to lock in V10s or should the option for the variety that was a big part of most of the 90s, should that have been kept open? It's sensible and boring and completely correct, but also really, really boring, sadly. It made me think of, we did um, one of the, the listener questions episodes where we were asked what our favourite engine sound from the V10 era was and most of us said the Ferrari V12 instead. Um, and I think... You know, we, we had the crazy Subaru engine earlier in this period as well. It, it makes, when you've got manufacturers coming in in droves, giving them chances to spend yet more money is not a good idea. So the prospect of all the manufacturers that are there in the early 2000s having a V8, a V10 and a V12 all in development just in case one worked out really well, that would have been an absolute nightmare and probably hastened a few exits as well. So yeah, it was absolutely the right thing to be doing, but nah, really a shame still. Yeah, if only we could have got that Subaru 
comeback. But one manufacturer that was returning to the grid for 2000 was BMW, which was starting its test program around this time in 1999 with a development engine in the back of a 1998 Williams. The first tests were taking place at the small Miramas circuit, which BMW motorsport boss Gerhard Berger said was to shield the team from public pressure. BMW technical director Paul Roche said it was running in private so it could calmly test and study the results of our efforts and because BMW did not yet have to measure itself against current Formula One engines. Ben, how exciting was the prospect of BMW coming back into F1? Oh, very exciting. I mean, this is one of the the turbo grandee marks, you know, out of Formula One for 13 years or 12 years at this point, but 13 years by the time they came back. Um, you know, this is the period where the manufacturer interest in F1 is starting to, to come back. And then, you know, into the 2000s, it, it goes into hyperdrive. And Williams obviously desperate at this point for a, a tie up, you know, they're this is the wilderness years after all the, the Renault World Championship glory. And the fact that the BMW are talking about doing this sensibly and shielding themselves from pressure, I mean, in the end, it turned out to be the right approach, didn't it? Because when they did come back, they transformed Williams. And if anything, they were a bit too good for Williams, as uh, Patrick Head has said many times subsequently. Um, and they also then gave uh, Sauber a boost when that relationship fell apart. So they stuck around for a long time, um, achieved quite a lot of success, not as much as they wanted to, obviously. Um, but yeah, definitely um, a, a big plus in terms of what they brought to Formula One in this period. While BMW's arrival meant would be getting another engine supplier on the grid, one option was about to be taken away, with Ford deciding to end three decades of customer supply to focus on its works effort with Stewart after 1999. This was a couple of months before it was announced that Ford was taking over Stewart and turning it into Jaguar. So at this stage, this story was basically bad news for Minardi, which was going to have to find a more expensive customer supply elsewhere. Ford's director of European motorsport, Martin Whitaker, said, Traditionally, customer engines have been a good source of revenue for Ford, but we can't really afford to take our eye off the ball. We're in F1 to win, and we have to channel all our technical resources in one direction. Now, Matt, we're going to try and discuss this and ignore how Ford's master plan turned out with Jaguar. Looking at it in isolation in 99, was it a logical decision at the time, to remove the burden of the customer engine program. I think I might use exactly the same noise as I used for the V10 thing, just going, nah, it's <laughs> completely sensible, but again, a little bit boring. It, Ford was under no obligation to prop up the back end of the grid with um, budget underpowered engines, but it, it, it had done for decades, and, and there was an expectation among backmarkers that it still would carry on. Um, thinking back to the start of the V10 era, when we, we had this enormous 39 car entry for the start of 1989 season 21 of those had ford cosworth engines in the back of them that was the extent to which anyone who was fancying chancing a random f1 entry was just writing a check to ford and plopping the engine in the back um yeah it probably wasn't really taking that much um focus away from what ford was doing with its serious team at that point but again, going into an era of, of very serious manufacturer programs, if you've got Minardi knock on your door asking asking you to fix their broken engine every now and again, or even just the logistics or the extra personnel required for that, that's a distraction from making an ultra lightweight, ultra competitive engine to take on Mercedes with. So yeah, uh, 
completely sensible from Ford, even if a, a shame and just a sign of how F1 was going in, in terms of putting everything towards the big shiny end of the grid instead. Okay, so that's Matt's view. But unlike our very own Gary Anderson, uh, Matt wasn't inside the team. So let's get Gary's take on what it was like seeing Ford change its priorities or remove what could be potentially seen as a distraction to focus more of its efforts on Stuart. When uh, when Ford announced that they were stopping the customer engine program, it, it didn't really surprise us, I suppose, because Jackie was always pushing that to be a proper works team and to take on the, the, the competition, um, you needed to have a full focus on, on one team and uh, the supply of one engine, the integration of that engine into the chassis. You know, it all becomes one. And I think nowadays you can see that even more. But uh, even then, it was, it was important because there's so, so much detail in, in having a good installation and the customer will always want something different. So I think we viewed it inside the company that it was a positive thing for the future. Um, the bit that we were sort of confused a little bit about was how the finance was going to be raised because obviously customer engines do bring money in, which helps you to build more parts, which helps you to do a bit more research. So it, it needed to be financed correctly. And we were a little bit worried about that because I think Ford were a little bit naive as to how much it actually really did cost um, as far as taking on the whole responsibility just for two racing cars on a racetrack. But it was, I think it was, it was viewed as positive as long as it was going to be done correctly. The news of Ford's bigger commitment and focus on Stuart then came around six months after there'd been strong rumours of Ford turning its attention to Benetton. And those rumours were absolutely true, as during 1998, David Richards had been running the show at Benetton, and he'd come to the conclusion that the team needed a manufacturer partnership of its own to keep up with the changing world of F1. Speaking on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast in July 2022, Richards said, By the end of the year, it was clear to me they needed an outside investor. They needed a car company to join them. I'd had meetings with Ford and I was recommending that they should partner with Ford. They decided that's not the direction they wanted to take and we parted at the end of that year. So Ben, get your reverse crystal ball out. <laughs> Benetton Ford works team at the turn of the century. How might that have worked out? And the easy first question is, would it have been better than Jaguar? <laughs> I think it's uh, it's difficult to foresee it being anything other than better than Jaguar. Um given the way that that turned out. But I guess it depends, you know, using that example, whether Ford would have kept themselves at arm's length to a certain degree. Obviously, Benetton had a very successful partnership with Ford uh, prior to this period. Uh, then end up kind of in the lurch, just like Williams, really, when, when Renault pull out. Um, faff around with these kind of Mechachrome, Super Life badged Flavio engines for a while, Renault engines that are becoming outdated. If Ford had, had been able to kind of throw their weight behind the existing technical team and, and be a, an engine partner, I can see how it might have worked, provided that Ford could be on top of the engine properly and do something that was at least a match for the, the other front runners. But of course, the way they played the, the Jaguar game was to kind of take over the operation and run it using Ford people and according to their own corporate culture. And I think if you'd applied that to Team Enstone, I'm not sure it would have worked particularly well. Um, but certainly David Richards was right in terms of his forecast because Benetton were crying out for that partnership. And when they did eventually get it after a few years, obviously they, they turned themselves into title contenders again. 
Yeah, I think you're right, actually. The, the problem with the Jaguar setup was the Ford side of it, wasn't it? And that would have still been involved at Benetton. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, may, maybe the fact that Benetton was more established might have helped, but maybe Ford were always going to get it wrong. So by this stage of 1999, Benetton was now being linked to Toyota. However, Rocco Benetton, who Richards had been brought in the previous year to mentor, denied those rumours. And with Honda's U-turn that we mentioned earlier freeing up a space on the grid, it was thought more likely that Toyota would go it alone than buy into another team. Anyway, but despite turning down the Ford link set up by Richards in 1998, Benetton at least seemed aware of what Ben mentioned there, that the changing landscape in F1 as we approach the turn of the century. Rocco Benetton said, F1 is changing and we need to keep abreast of that change. Perhaps we need to explore the limits of our involvement. Of course, we are interested in forming a partnership with a major manufacturer, but F1 will remain a very important arena for Benetton, and our identity within the sport is very important to us. Matt, as, as uh, we mentioned actually in the intro and we heard from some of our audience, Benetton were rubbish in 1999, uh, and they were only a couple of years away from what Ben described, getting bought by Renault. Do you think by now, was F1 just moving away from entities like Benetton being able to run successful F1 teams. Yeah, absolutely. And I think every time we discussed 99, we mentioned it just felt like the last hurrah for independent teams with what Jordan was going to go on to do later that season when it's unlikely title tilt. But mentioning Jordan, I, I do think it's worth saying, yeah, Rocco Benetton was right. F1 was moving away from his sort of company. Right now at this point, though, Benetton was doing a much worse job of being a successful independent team than Jordan was, um, often worse even than, than Williams at this point, and Williams was not having a good time overall in, in 1999. So Benetton is, is in a way a bad example of this problem because it was suffering as much as anything from the kind of talent drain that had um, happened since Schumacher left at the end of 95 and revealed how much the team was relying on on Schumacher, Braun, Rory Byrne to, to make everything work. So, you know, it's a lot of its choices after that with Nick Worth designing cars, some of the technologies it explored and the driver lineup. You know, I, I think we found out physical inverts his limitations quite quickly. So, yeah, absolutely right. A company like Benetton was not going to be running a successful F1 team into the 2000s, but Benetton kind of hastened its own demise by, as you say, being rubbish at this point. And then hitting the jackpot with Renault anyway. It wasn't only manufacturers that being linked to Benetton in early 99, though. as During the San Marino Grand Prix weekend, a big story broke that the team was trying to sign Charlie Whiting from the FIA. This caused plenty of concern in the paddock as teams were fearful that Whiting would have knowledge of what every team on the grid was up to technically and he could potentially take that knowledge with him to Benetton. Bernie Eccleston, Willie, uh, Whiting's former boss at Brabham, played that down. Bernie said any secrets he would know would be obsolete by now. Things move so fast that secrets are secrets for two weeks and then no longer. McLaren boss Ron Dennis made a similar point in his own Ron way, saying it's one thing to know that it's possible to walk on the moon. It's another to go out there and duplicate it. However, Ron also said he hoped Whiting would end up staying at the FIA because he would be so difficult to replace, as we've all found out since Charlie's untimely death in 2019. Ben, obviously we know Charlie didn't go to Benetton and in recent years we have seen other FIA personnel leave to join teams. How big a deal would this have been if Charlie Whiting had jumped back over the fence onto team management side? Well, I suspect that it would have been a 
bigger loss to the workings of Formula One than it would have been a gain to Benetton. Um, and I think that's, although I think Whiting is an exceptional case because of the breadth of his experience uh, and his knowledge, um, certainly subsequently, um, you can see with other examples that have happened like this more recently, you know, Marcin Budkowski moving from the FA to Renault, uh, Laurent Mekis moving to Ferrari. You know, these guys, when those moves happened, it caused the same kind of stink among rivals. Oh, no, what are they going to take with them? What do they know? We've got to have some kind of control over this. And it always seems like that impact is, or potential impact, is overstated because then what happens subsequently is those teams kind of perform how they always have done or were going to anyway. And you don't... So they never walk on the moon. Well, exactly. <laughs> so kind of Ron, again, in his own unique Ron way, is kind of right. You know, it's, it's something you, you, you worry about in a paranoid sense, but really it, it's never been the game changer. I don't think there's ever been a case, certainly in modern Formula One, of a guy coming from the Formula One FIA side and transforming a team. Generally, it feels like it's the other way around, and actually, the FIA or Formula One is underpowered on the technical side, and tend to have rings run round them and rules written for them by the the key people, top people at the teams. So, certainly, if you had the FIA or F1 poaching somebody uh, current and rated from the technical side of F1, that would be, I think, a bigger deal than someone like Whiting going the other way. Elsewhere on the grid, tension was brewing between Prost and Peugeot. They'd endured a miserable first season together in 1998, scoring just one point. And while they'd already matched that after two races of 1999, the relationship was still very short on harmony. Prost was complaining about Peugeot not developing what he called a mini-engine for 1999, which Ford, Mercedes and to a lesser extent Ferrari had done by building lightweight engines. Projo was promising a new engine that was 15 kilograms lighter would be ready for testing later in the year. Prost said 1999 was a case of doing the best with what we have, but his ambition was to start fighting with the top teams in 2000. And he said it was an absolute necessity to have a new engine from Peugeot to achieve that. Peugeot understandably got a bit defensive about this pressure with Peugeot sport boss Corrado Provera saying, we have the best of the old generation engines and only Mercedes and Ford have new generation engines. Matt, it feels like any time we talk about the late 90s, this this pocket of F1 history, we always end up talking about Prost and Peugeot having arguments. Was Prost right to be putting this much pressure on Peugeot to step it up? Ah, uh, well... If, if Prost had at any point looked good at running an F1 team or had a design team that looked any good at designing F1 cars, you could understand it more. But ah, Peugeot was not a success in F1. It spent its first year catching fire and blaming other people for it. It spent a couple of years at Jordan where, apart from some... some it, hasn't, it had some good moments for sheer horsepower, actually, at times then, but overall it was not a success. And Gar Anderson is very revealing on that as well. 
And it, it just did also do a rubbish job at Pross, which you could see coming right from the start because we discussed it in our Pross 97 episode in the last series. When Peugeot and Pross got together, the vibe from Peugeot straight away was, this is really exciting, but we need to spend less with you than we'd be spending with um, any other team and get more return on it. So it's like, okay, great. Just as F1's going to a big manufacturer era, you're reducing your commitment and expecting more success from, from doing that with this unproven team that you've now signed up with because they're the same nationality and a bit high profile. So there were no ingredients on either the car management or engine side to make this package a success together. So yeah, Prost was right to put point the finger at Peugeot, but you could point the finger at every every part of this package and go, you're underperforming, you're making bad decisions, you're underestimating F1. And I didn't realize until you said it just now that Prost had declared 2000 would be the year they'd be up with the top teams because 2000 was the absolute nadir of that team for, for competitiveness. It was just embarrassingly terrible so yeah Prost isn't wrong but he um, he probably wasn't looking at a mirror when he when he said that I think it's also quite telling that when that relationship finally ended I think this is a sign of the toxicity that was maybe in the background of these public pronouncements even as early as 99 Pojo declared it relief that they were getting out of Formula One and they vowed never to return. So <laughs> it must have been a really awful experience going right back to, you know, 94 with McLaren, no doubt, but working with Prost more latterly trying to, I think, mesh together, you know, two philosophies that weren't really ever compatible. And yeah, I mean, they clearly didn't enjoy their time in Formula One. Very, very pleased to get out. I would feel some sympathy for Peugeot there if it wasn't the fact that they were one of the main parties that put so much pressure on Alain Prost to buy Ligier in the first place. So I think they have to shoulder some responsibility. Elsewhere in Prost News, uh, which is a catchy name for a podcast, uh, its driver Jano Trulli was one of the main names being linked to the second Ferrari seat alongside Michael Schumacher. Trulli was pretty open about this, saying... There has been no contract offer, but I know there have been talks. It's every driver's dream to be offered a drive at Ferrari. I am contracted to Prost and believe it has the potential to get to the front, but it would be very difficult to turn down an offer from Ferrari. Alain Prost said he was aware of the interest in Trulli, but he said he had an option on the Italian for 2000 and he had no intention of giving it up, stating he wouldn't take a payoff to release him. Trulli, of course, didn't race for Prost in 2000, but he also didn't race for Ferrari. Uh, ben, Italians driving at Ferrari is always the romantic's choice. Could Trulli have made a good number two to Michael Schumacher? It's very difficult to answer this question without knowing what we know subsequently. Uh, and I think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, the answer is probably no. Uh, and not because he wasn't a very good driver. And you can tell from you know, even this period, you know, he was a bit of a hot property, actually. Um, very, very quick. Um, but the, there's a lot of pressure at Marinello anyway. And then if you're an Italian driver, that goes up an extra notch. Would Trilli have been able to handle that? I'm not so sure. Would it have been the right mix for the team? Even, you know, Trilli subsequently at Renault with Alonso, that didn't work out too well. He was, if anything, a bit too fast. Uh, to play the dutiful number two. Um, was Schumacher a driver who needed someone in the other car to give him a hurry up? I mean, sometimes you do need that. Vettel got far too comfortable with Raikkonen when they were Ferrari teammates. But I never got the feeling that Schumacher really relied on his teammate to, to push him on. He was he was the guy breaking new ground and uh, 
walking on the moon, as Ron might say, in Formula One at that time. So feels to me more like a, a way of using the media to give Irvine a hurry up rather than any kind of properly realistic option for Ferrari. I don't think it really would have been the right mix. I would have quite liked to see it as a storyline. And I can, Im- I can genuinely imagine truly out qualifying Schumacher quite often at that point, especially in um, in 2000, because Barrichello's qualifying pace relative to Schumacher was pretty decent that year, straight into the team. So I can see I can see Trulli sticking it on a fair few poles, but then having completely disastrous race praise, probably Schumacher passing him on lap one. And then I can definitely imagine a bit of a Trulli meltdown behind the scenes. And I, I, I think if that deal had happened, it might have lasted about as long as Capelli and Ferrari did. Cool. That would have been... Uh... That would have been pretty explosive. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think Yano Trulli necessarily had the the making quick over a lap, certainly at this time. But I'm not sure he could have handled the relentlessness required to be Schumacher's teammate. One man who did achieve that quite well, I think, uh, was Eddie Irvine, who was in the second Ferrari seat at this time. And Irvine said it was natural for gossip about his drive to flare up around Ferrari's first home race of the year. In his book he released at the end of 1999 called Life in a Fast Lane, Eddie called it the usual speculation about Michael wanting a new teammate and Ferrari talking to other drivers. Nothing new there, Ferrari always talked to everyone. However, Irvine added, Michael was very important to Ferrari. I'd felt for a time that I was getting a little too close to him in terms of speed and performance. Uh, which is Ben's pulling a face, which is good based on what he just said. And the other side of that coin was uh, Ferrari president Luca di Montezemolo commented on the rumours at Imola saying, I am very happy with Eddie, but it's too early to discuss the future. It is important Ferrari has a driver who can win when Michael has troubles. So Matt, what do you make of this? Irvine thought he was getting too close to Schumacher's pace, while Montezemolo was stressing that Ferrari needed a driver who could pick up the pieces in support of Schumacher. And to make it even more complex, Irvine had won a race already in 1999 and was basically level with Schumacher in the championship. So what on earth's going on here? <laughs> I could try and um, verbalise the facial expression Ben had, because I think mine's basically It was excellent, the same. yeah. It was great, wasn't it? Um, I- Irvine wasn't getting too close to Schumacher. That that was nonsense. You literally look at the results. That was nonsense. Um, Irvine was was getting a bit closer in qualifying sometimes, but he also had qualifying session, sessions where he was a second or more off Schumacher's pace. He wasn't consistently really anywhere anywhere near him. He was doing better than he had been when the Ferraris were rubbish in '96 and part of '97, where Irvine was you know, really floundering sometimes, but. Yeah, he had won a race, but it was a race where um, the McLarens and Schumacher retired. It wasn't exactly a, a straight fight on merit. So I, I think what might have been happening here, bearing in mind Irvine's book was being written during the season where he was you know, making moves to leave for Jaguar and try and set himself up as a number one in his own right, which you know went spectacularly well, but was lucrative for him. Um, that When he first signed for Ferrari, he was extremely pragmatic, knew what was coming and was just making that calculation and going, I can earn really well. I can get some really good results. I can have a pretty good life here. And okay, I'll do the donkey work. I'll probably get beaten by Schumacher, but I'm going to be better off doing that than slogging around at Jordan or Sauber or something. And four years into that, now he's a race winner. That is probably beginning to, he's probably beginning to literally tire of that lifestyle and wondering what else might be available for him. So I I can see that being the main part of what Irvine's talking about is in his own interest if he's trying to look for a number one drive elsewhere to make some of these re- remarks through the year as well um I think 
De Montezemolo saying we need a driver who can pick up the pieces is okay as a theory, but Ferrari hadn't acted like that for some time. And then when Schumacher um, it broke his leg later in the year, yeah, Irvine did pick up the pieces in terms of carrying the title fight, but made extremely heavy weather of it. Was only in that title fight because McLaren made even heavier weather of it, and was deeply unimpressive a lot of the time when he was supposed to be leading Ferrari's title fight and just leaving enormous question marks about how competitive Ferrari really was and what Schumacher could be doing in that car. So I think I'm concluding that um, everybody is wrong in, in this Irvine and Montezemolo conversation. Oh, I have to say Matt verbalized my facial expression very well. Um, I think <laughs> it's good to know. Uh, Irvine is kind of talking nonsense, really. Certainly on the evidence of Imola, he's miles off Schumacher. Uh, it's like a different class. Uh, so I think actually, in terms of the way you pose the question, De Montezemolo is right. Ferrari are looking for a guy who needs to pick up the pieces. They need Irvine to be a bit quicker and more consistent than he was. Uh, and the way that season played out, I kind of feel that if we had a bizarro world where Schumacher didn't break his leg, although McLaren were, were strong, I think Schumacher would have won that championship Um where Irvine, in his best season, let's face it, should have. Yeah, I think it's widely accepted, and I'd agree that Schumacher would have would have won this championship. Uh, in the interest of balance, and not to give too much away for when we inevitably do more Irvine 99 episodes, Eddie would tell you that as soon as Michael broke his leg, uh, I believe the quote is, the, uh, the 99 car came out of the wind tunnel, uh, so he didn't get any development until they threw some 2,000 bits on it at the end of the year when they realised uh, McLaren were doing such a terrible job of trying to win the championship in Schumacher's absence. But let's move on to someone whose struggles were much worse, unfortunately, than Irvine's were at any point, because F1's first visit of the year to Italy also gave Alex Zanardi his first home Grand Prix since he returned from his all-conquering spell racing in kart in America. But Zanardi had got off to a horrible start in F1 and after a troubled pre-season and tough opening two races, he knew he was already in big trouble. Williams had given Zanardi an inexperienced engineer because the team felt that would allow him to experiment more than if he had an experienced engineer who just told him to adapt to the best way to set up the car. But at Imola, Zanardi told Williams' Patrick Head that it wasn't working out and they should do something about it before it was too late. Patrick said he'd think about it, but Zanardi wrote in his book, I could tell from his eyes that he was no longer seeing the Alex Zanardi. I had simply become another struggling driver who was being beaten by his teammate. At that point, I realised the trust was fading. I didn't have the energy or tenacity to rectify the situation, which was clearly heading in the wrong direction. In public at Imola, Zanardi said uh, Williams's car and a Supertech engine weren't good enough, uh, but he said the unreliability he kept suffering seemed to be controlled by some sort of devil possessing the car. He also described himself adapting to F1 after racing in America as being like a diesel engine that needs a few laps to warm up. And if the car breaks down before he's warmed up, then he can't get the best out of it. Say what you like about Alex, he certainly has a way with words. Matt, we weren't to know at the time just how much trouble Zanardi was in behind the scenes already in his F1 comeback, should he have been able to fight through it at this early stage? Or was he right to suggest that the die was already cast? I, I was um, probably fighting for the title of greatest Zanardi fan in the universe through kind of 96, 97, particularly when he was 
conquering car in amazing fashion. But even then, I could see the kind of um, ways he'd let himself down emotionally. Sometimes a, a lot of a lot of the magic he created was in, in cart was through this belief that he could do anything. That if he was twenty second after a penalty, he could still win. That him and his engineer Mo Nun could come up with a magic setup that would transform what the Ganassi car could do. Magic is probably the best word for it. It was. It was. There was a lot of. He was famed for his technical feedback and his intuition when he was in America. But a lot of it came from his confidence and his imagination that he could he could make something happen with the car as well. And when things went badly, there were races in kart where he would basically hit everybody in sight and um, finish about eleventh, and then get a massive fine for hitting everybody. So yeah, he w- he wasn't a. He wasn't going to be a reliable genius. He was a genius, but he wasn't going to be a reliably consistent one. And I think had he come to F1 and got a a quite competitive car, a reasonably decent engine and a decent relationship with with a team, I think he could have done very well if there'd been, say, a five out of ten level of problems to grapple through. I think he could have found dug within himself, used his technical feedback and really, really knuckled down to do it. This was kind of more like a three out of 10 situation in terms of all the things he was up against with the team losing faith in him, the the nature of F1 and the tires at this time, really not suing his driving style and unreliability. That that idea of um, chucking in a, a rookie engineer because Zanardi's ideas might be a bit crazy. Sorry, Patrick Head, what was the logic of that? Really? That's that I, I can't see any sense behind that at, at all. Just have, have a, have a, an open-minded engineering lineup around him that tries to get the best out of some of the crazy stuff he might come up with, but through a window of experienced F1 logic, so it's got a hope of working. So there were a lot of factors working against Zanardi, and you know he he said in his book as well that family life at that time was such that he maybe didn't have the energy to dig really deep to make his second F1 coming a massive success when he was up against all these things. So I think he should bear a lot of responsibility for it going wrong because he could have done more about it and made some better choices. But I I, I don't think this was ever going to be particularly successful, whatever he did. Let's move on to someone who didn't even manage to stick around in F1 as long as Zanardi did in 99. And this is a much requested topic on this show Prince Malik Addo Ibrahim and his infamous T-Minus brand. T-Minus officially launched over the Imola weekend after initially starting life as a weird countdown on the side of the Arrows cars. It was described as a lifestyle brand that would go around branding things like Lamborghinis, Ducatis, clothing, energy drinks and technology such as mobile phones. Prince Malik was the son of a Nigerian tribal king, And we'll come back to his stake in Arrows shortly. But first, let's take a look at T-Minus. Speaking in an interview with F1 Racing magazine back in 1999, with none other than Tom Clarkson, whose interviews we normally quote from the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, Malik explained, I've watched this sport for the last three years and I've seen big men making mistakes business-wise. Most of the people running Formula One teams are not real businessmen. T-Minus has huge possibilities because it's a brand and I'm using the greatest advertising medium in the world, F1, to promote it. Nobody before has taken fashion to F1 and my clothes will be available in the high street. Now, all I would interject here to say is Benetton might have something to say about that claim. 
Back to Malik, though. He says, it is my job to provide the funds for Arrows to go racing. And it is my belief that the traditional forms of sponsorship should not be important to that end. I'm not ruling out traditional forms of sponsorship. That would be stupid. But it's just we, we should not have to be so dependent on it. He went on to explain it was much easier for Arrows and T-Miners to come up with fresh merchandise people would want to keep buying, whereas it was harder to keep selling Michael Schumacher t-shirts <laughs> because uh, because he's just one person who can't reinvent himself. I could barely finish that sentence. I'm sorry. Um, ben, yeah. there's so much to get into here. Let's do the best we can with it. As far as the idea behind T minus went if you have deciphered it from all of that what do you think uh oh it's baffling to me I've I've tried very hard uh since being booked as a guest on this podcast to <laughs> to understand what this guy was up to and what T minus was I don't I honestly can't tell you what it's about he's branding stuff but I can't really work out why um uh, how many people have spare Lamborghinis that need branding for no reason? It seems like a very, very small market <laughs> to me. Uh, so it just seems like a chancer. In terms of the business, that the business I use inverted commas around that word, that he's purportedly representing or selling. So I I can't really get my head around it other than he is supposedly from Nigerian royal stock and has a major bank on his side so therefore you know a desperate underfunded formula one team just and this is a story that's been repeated just sees potential cash coming in for 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 them to survive or thrive and they don't really care about the nonsense that's being presented around that but unfortunately perhaps you need to pay a bit of attention to that nonsense because all you end up with is what he's talking which is complete hot air yeah, we've seen it enough times before and since. Let's move on to how Prince Malik ended up at Arrows then. He said he had made a lot of enemies in the F1 paddock because I tried to buy into a lot of teams and they didn't want to talk to me. It was reported that he came close to buying 40% of Jordan, although Eddie Jordan's book makes no mention of him. And he then landed his deal with Arrows on the eve of the 99 season, which resulted in him and his partners, as Ben mentioned, Morgan Grenfell, acquiring a 75% stake in Arrows. Malik said he would split the role of running the team with Tom Walkinshaw, so he would handle the commercial side and Tom would carry on running the technical side of the team. He said Arrows would offer advertisers a chance to look hip, and the team would constantly do different things and react to the latest fashions to give the public what they want. Whatever that is. Um, <laughs> he said he'd not been given the pleasure of meeting Bernie Eccleston. And of the other teams that didn't want to speak to him, he added, if I prove myself to be right, they're all going to rue the day. They said I was an idiot. It's like he was pressing a soundboard, isn't it? Just these quotes. Um we won't get into it here. We'll save it for another episode. But by September 99, Prince Malik was gone. And the stake of arrows that was left uh, fell into the hands of Morgan Grenfell. That became a key factor in preventing Red Bull buying the team in 2002 to save it going out of business. So this certainly did some long term damage. Uh, Matt, I'm trying to pick the best bit of that to ask you about. 
and I'm going for this one. Do you think anyone in the F1 paddock rude the day they wrote off Prince Malik? Well, I can't help thinking you should have gone and chat to Ron Dennis because saying he'd offer advertisers the chance to look hip and react to the latest fashions to give the public what they want. That sounds like something Ron would say when trying to be cool. So <laughs> that, that would never have worked, obviously. Uh, I think Prince Malik was both before and after his time. I think if he had turned up in the early 90s around pre-qualifying era, he could have got like 10 teams just desperate to get involved in what he was doing. And if he turned up 10 years later at the dawn of social media, basically selling some vacuous nothing that made no sense, I think there'd been a huge... He might have T-minus might have been a success and trended in lots of places. So... Yeah, we're writing him off too easily. Nobody mentioned Rich Energy. (laughs) Let's get into the race weekend action then. In qualifying, Hakkinen edged McLaren teammate David Coulthard by 22 thousandths of a second. And Michael Schumacher showed Ferrari's development push was starting to pay off as he went from being a second off the pace in Australia and Brazil to being just a tenth behind Hakkinen at Imola. And I think Schumacher had been testing at Fiorano the day before Free practice started this weekend. That's how Ferrari used to do business. But the big story of qualifying, of course, had to be Jacques Villeneuve putting his troublesome BAR fifth on the grid. Best of the rest behind the McLarens and Ferraris. Villeneuve was glowing with praise about his car, saying this was the first time since his title-winning 1997 season with Williams that he'd had the feeling that allowed him to just go out and push to the limit every time. Unfortunately, as we know, the joy was short-lived as Villeneuve's car failed to get off the line. The engine was initially still running, but it was a suspected gearbox problem. So, Ben, no joy for Villeneuve and BAR when it counted on Sunday, but how good was that qualifying performance to land fifth on the grid? Well, it's cruel of you to ask me as a Damon Hill fan to talk up Jacques Villeneuve because obviously in my partisanship in that period, I hated Jacques Villeneuve and didn't want him to do well. I only wanted Damon to thrive. Uh, and the all... second half of this answer better be good. <laughs> uh, so grudgingly, I have to admit that it was a fantastic performance. And actually, Villeneuve in that whole season kind of looks re-energised after obviously the you know the downturn that Williams went through quite abruptly the year before. You know, he was, he's, he's obliterating his teammates um, when you look at his record through that season. And this is... This is another example of that. I think he only gets out-qualified twice all year. Um, whenever his teammates, it's Salo for that race and Zonta mainly, when they do get close, it's very rare that they get close to him. Often he's like a second or more clear. So you have to say that the comments he makes about the car, they, they're bared out in the, or borne out in the results um, because he's just flying. And it's a shame for him that the car was so unreliable because he should have had a lot more reward for that kind of, heroic Saturday form. You did pull it back there well, and any answer that finishes with heroic is fine. Yeah, that was a that was a quick but fragile car on its day. Let's focus, though, on the cars that did get off the line. Hakkinen was leading the field, and he was pushing like crazy. In the first 17 laps of the race, he set a new fastest lap nine times, but at the end of lap 18, it all went wrong. Hakkinen was 12 seconds clear of Coulthard when he lost control on the exit curb of the final corner and his car snaps left straight into the wall on the main straight, as we heard Murray Walker commentate over so brilliantly earlier. Hacken had admitted straight away it was his mistake. 
He explained it in more detail back in 2019 on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, saying it was a combination of the 99 McLaren being more nervous to drive than the 98 car and the fact he was pushing so hard to build a gap because he was two-stopping while Coulthard was one-stopping. Mika said, We had a discussion in Imola and this was going to be a difficult one. It was a calculation that we needed a certain lap time compared to our competitors to be able to win. Every lap had to be in a certain window, not two tenths slower. It had to be spot on all the time. And when you do that, when the driver has to perform fighting against the clock all the time, you need to take risks. Imola was purely my mistake, no doubt about it, because I was just too greedy, pushing too hard on the curb and going too fast. Matt, that's a that's a great explanation. And when we said we were doing this episode, we did get some questions saying, why did Mika go off? Does his description make this an understandable error or should a world champion not be making a blunder like that? I, I actually felt his description made me less sympathetic in a way because I just... I read that quote and thought, well, that's what Schumacher was doing every race and through his title-winning years, at least the title-winning years, with real opposition. Um, that's what Alonso would start doing as soon as he got anywhere near an F1 car uh, a couple of years later and, you know, Hamilton, Verstappen since. That, that, that's the, what the top level was going to be from that point, just absolute relentless qualifying pace in the race. That was what F1 was becoming. And you couldn't there wasn't so much space to be ragged there wasn't so much space to have a mid-race nap and and yeah i've got an, an absolute ton of admiration for Mika hacken and obviously but the way he describes that i just i just read that and thought no that's 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 world champion that's what you should be doing um that said the thing that did make me more sympathetic at the time these were horrible cars like i i, I was never a fan of the narrow track and grooved hard single spec Bridgestone tires. I, I just thought they made F1 ugly, skittish, and annoying in '98 and '99 before the teams kind of started to refine the designs more. It, I just thought they looked awful compared to Kart Champ cars, which were proper racing cars. So when actually, you know, in, in the Pembroke Cafe saw that crash happen, I just thought, well, that's half Hackenham's fault and half the fact he's lumbered with a ridiculous era of twitchy F1. Yeah, I'd echo that last point actually. That I mean, this is not to completely defend Hackenham because. As Matt says, he's a world champion. You know, there's a lot expected of you when you're uh, carrying that mantle. Um, but the cars are uh, really, really positive in terms of having a bias towards front-end grip. And you can see it at Imola. You know, so many other drivers in the slow corners, hooking the curbs, the, re- the rear coming round of them, having to catch it. Irvine nearly has an identical shunt to Hakkinen later in the race. Um, so they clearly were a handful, um, but you know Hakkinen's got to make the adjustment, you know, especially given his quality. And I just felt like this is, you know, given the way Braun and Schumacher were going about their racing from kind of you know middle of '98 onwards, this is kind of Hakkinen trying to do what Schumacher does and just not quite being able to to manage it consistently enough, and ultimately living a little bit too close to the edge. Oh, it's not even looking at Ferrari in 98, though. He could have looked back to Benetton in 94, 95 and seen seen how they were going about doing this, just unleashing race pace from against the odd strategy. Just he, He's five years late with the memo that that's how you have to drive a Grand Prix now. Yeah, one thing I would suggest to anyone listening to this is, weirdly, this is the only race from... 1999 that isn't available in full in the f1 tv archive this isn't a paid spot just uh we love watching the old races here 
And there is a theory that that's because uh, of Jody Schechter's commentary filling in for Martin Brundle, which was so bad. Um, but if you can find some footage of the opening laps of this race, it's well worth watching it to get the true visual representation of what Ben and Matt have described there. The the cars, and particularly Hacken and Art, being thrown all over the road. Skittish is the word I would use. They, they, it really The driving style required, especially in early 99, seemed to be that you had to absolutely launch the car everywhere. And uh, yeah, Hakkinen, as he said, got a bit too greedy. But his crash turned the race into a battle between Coulthard and Schumacher, who were both fueled to go much further into the race before making a stop. Schumacher came in on lap 31, bang on half distance, which you would expect to be for a one-stop strategy. But Ferrari gambled. They short-fueled Schumacher to see if he could make up enough time on Coulthard before stopping for a second time to then come out in the lead. Coulthard came in four laps after Schumacher's first stop, taking on fuel to the end of the race, so he was one-stopping. And that longer stop meant he came out behind Schumacher in this phase of the race. So now the chase was on to see if Schumacher could build an advantage of 20 seconds that he would need before his second stop. And this is where Coulthard's race fell apart. DC first got held up by Pedro Diniz's Sauber, then got stuck for several laps behind Olivier Panis's Prost, which was chasing Giancarlo Fisichella's Benetton. Panis eventually let him through, but Coulthard almost immediately went off at Rivazza to fall behind him again. Coulthard said afterwards, I was losing two seconds a lap. I knew the damage was done and that Michael would come out ahead of me. It's ridiculous. It's as if you're racing these guys and they're a lap down. Uh, McLaren boss Ron Dennis called the backmarkers unsporting and out of order. And during the race, he'd even stomped down to tell his former driver, Alain Prost, to get Panis to move over. Panis wasn't particularly impressed with all this attention he was getting afterwards. He said, Michael arrived behind me far quicker than David, so I let him pass straight away. David was not as quick as I expected. He took a long time to come up behind me. I let him pass after the second call from the team, and then he went off two corners later. I can see why he is annoyed, but it's not my problem. I can't let people pass every time. Where do you stand on this, Ben? Was was Coulthard screwed over here or should he have been better at dealing with the traffic? Uh, well, I mean, listening to those those quotes from Ron, I mean, it's it's not surprising no one wanted to do McLaren a favour in that period, is it? I mean, he's just busy <laughs> slagging off everybody on the grid. Panis is a Grand Prix winner by this point, of course. So, you know, going around saying everyone's terrible is to jump out the way of your drivers. I mean, this is the era before, you know, you had three blue flags before you had to let somebody buy and you'd get penalty so this is this is traffic management it's part of racing in formula one at this time and uh it was a very exciting element as well because races that seemed like they were done and dusted could turn on a driver not being able to get through the back mark as well or coming unstuck just by meeting them in the wrong place uh so ultimately i'm not with dc on this one I think he doesn't drive well enough in this race. Okay, he's, he's got a heavier car for the stints because the strategy is different. Um, but he makes too many mistakes. He's not incisive enough in traffic. As you mentioned, he, he goes off on his own. Um, there is there is a car ahead, but it's not so close to him that you feel like you know he's just lost the front end and can't do anything about it. And the amount that Schumacher comes out of the pits after that second stop ahead it's very close and I feel like without that mistake Coulthard's got a chance still of winning the race even though he hasn't driven particularly well so 
definitely the traffic didn't help, but it doesn't help anyone. Uh, so I think he has to shoulder most of the blame for the defeat. And this is just him kind of raging against the dying of the light, really. I have to say, if, if Ben had taken the obvious hacking and crash answer at the start of the episode for the what's your main memory of Imola, uh, my backup answer was the sound of David Coulthard whining. <laughs> <laughs> well, on to that a bit more. Coulthard felt that his problems made Ferrari's strategy and Schumacher's drive look better than it was. DC said, this does not take anything away from the achievements of Michael or Ferrari. I think it does. But we had the correct strategy and a quick enough package to have won. Because of factors other than the performance of the car and my driving, we didn't win it. People are going to say this was a fantastic strategy from Ferrari and an unbelievable drive from Michael, but it wasn't. We had the right strategy and there is no way he would have beaten us had I not got stuck behind backmarkers who should have moved over when they saw the blue flags. As for Schumacher, he said Ferrari's plan had always been to give themselves the flexibility of switching to a two-stop, especially if they ended up in a situation where doing the same as McLaren would just result in finishing where they were, so they felt they had nothing to lose. And he said that the short middle stint where he had to build up a gap to Coulthard was run at qualifying speeds. Matt, I've, I've seen this race, including uh, from our listeners, be described as one of Schumacher's great drives uh, and we answered a question about that in a previous series comparing it to his Hungary 98 charge was it that good or was Coulthard right that the way this race played out flattered Ferrari I do think Coulthard made it a bit easier for him than than, than needed to be um, but I think partly it's, it's like the optics of it I think Hungary 98 was even more surprising because he was it was a bit further into the race when he when he looks like he'd suddenly become a winner he was behind the McLaren 1-2 not just one of them at that point I mean Hungary 98 Hakkinen's car did break as well which gave Schumacher a bit of a leg up in 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 building that big gap I actually think and looking at them together I think Ferrari was closer to McLaren in pace as of this similar weekend certainly compared to how it was in Hungary a year earlier so there's less of a overcoming the car disadvantage um but yeah I, i'd agree i do think this is this is kind of uh almost a forgotten brilliant schumacher drive just because by that time we were getting a you know almost getting too many of these where he goes off strategy and, and humiliates mclaren with 10 qualifying laps <laughs> well behind the top two uh eddie irvine lost a comfortable run to third when his ferrari engine blew up and that put out fourth place man Heitzhald Frentzen as well when he spun out on Irvine's oil. That left Rubens Barrichello Stewart and the second Jordan of Damon Hill as the last men standing in the battle for the final podium spot, which went to Barrichello, Ben's cheering, which went to Barrichello, unfortunately, Ben, as both drivers finished a lap down on Schumacher. An emotional Barrichello dedicated his podium to Ayrton Senna, who'd been killed at Imola five years earlier. Barrichello had his own horrific crash that weekend in 1994 as well. And he said, this is the place where my life changed. And after everything we've been through, from the problems on the car to the problems with myself, I think that Imola this year has seen another changing point. This year, I have a competitive car, which allows me to show people what I am capable of doing. We are making progress all the time. Barrichello said Stewart had run with reduced revs to try to get to the finish in this race, and that year's car was no slouch. After the first three races of the year, his average grid position was fourth. So Matt, taking that into account, did you get the feeling 
in early 99 that Stewart had perhaps really made a breakthrough in F1. Oh, yeah, absolutely massively. I actually think um, Stewart's early season form in 99 is, is, a, is a forgotten piece of late 90s F1 brilliance that I need to get Gary Anderson to write an article about soon if I can think of an excuse for it. Um, they they were so quick. Uh, Barrichello was so quick, rather, in Melbourne qualifying. The car catches fire on the grid. He comes from the pit lane to fifth. He was leading for loads of his home race into Lagos, albeit on a two-stop strategy when uh, McLaren and Ferrari were one-stopping, I think. Um, and then the car blew up. So I think because the car blew up a lot early in the season, this is often forgotten. And then there was the crazy Nürburgring win later in the year, which gets all the attention with... Um, Johnny Herbert and Barrichello winning in a wet-dry race. But actually, first half of the year, looking at how, particularly looking at how bad Stewart's 98 had been, this was this was so impressive. Ford had um, come up with a lighter weight engine. Gary Anderson was having an impact at Stewart. Everything was coming together really nicely. And you could sort of erase the kind of aberration of the poor 98 and go, okay, this is, this is what a Jackie Stewart slash Ford F1 team can do. Um, it's, it's tempting to say, oh, look, 1999 proves that if only Jaguar hadn't got involved and it had stayed Stuart, it would have been glorious for years. Well, no, it wouldn't because Stuart was an independent team about to get eaten alive by manufacturers in the early 2000s. It was just, it, it was it was not a competent manufacturer it ended up being turned into. So I'm so glad that the Stuart F1 project has this 99 season with the win, with the front running performances, because I just think that's kind of what what Jackie Stewart's story as an F1 team owner deserves and shows that uh, despite Alan Prost trying to prove the opposite, an F1 legend could run an F1 team. Good point. Now, you mentioned Gary so many times there. It'd be remiss of us not to hear his thoughts as well. So this is what Gary made of getting that early season result on the board and what it meant to Stewart's 1999 season. As far as the car was concerned, I think we were at a, you know, a top six on the grid car, um, Rubens adapted to it very, very well. But it's always nice to get yourself, uh, you know, onto a podium. And you know, Emila was great. It sort of concretes it a little bit. Even though you're finishing fourth quite a few times, you know, to actually stand on the podium, you know, you've actually sort of made it. So, luck or no luck, um, there is only one winner at the end of a race, and there's only three guys standing on the podium. So yes, we had a bit of luck on the way. We also had a bit of bad luck because reliability of the engine wasn't the best thing um, we had some small hydraulic issues of, of our own um, but we had to you, you had to be very careful with it and your ribbons would would drive the car to suit how aggressive he needed to be to get to the end of the race so he was very very good at that he had a very good feeling for how he was abusing the car or the engine and uh, sometimes you have to do that unfortunately to to get the checkered flag Great stuff from Gary there. Uh, right, let's finish, though, for, for Ben's benefit. Let's finish with Damon Hill, who narrowly missed out on the podium by less than a second to Barrichello. Damon felt he lost too much time behind backmarkers. That was a trend for British drivers in this race. And having to let Schumacher through to lap him. So he ran out of time to catch Barrichello back up. Still, he, he said it felt good to complete a race distance for the first time in 1999, giving him a chance to get a better understanding of that year's car. And team boss Eddie Jordan confidently declared, Damon has now put the worry of the first two races out of the way. Oh, Eddie, if only you knew. Uh, Hill was only eight seconds behind teammate Frentzen when the lead Jordan retired. And as we've mentioned already or hinted at, it was rare for him to get that close at any point in 99. We have talked about Damon's struggles that year in great depth in our France 99 episode with the help of 
Jordan technical director Mike Gascoigne. So make sure you go back and check that out. And whenever we do this year's British Grand Prix, there'll be a massive hill section there as well and the retirement that never was. But we will make a quick stop off here too. In Damon's superb book, he said things started to look bad for him when Frentzen was suddenly a second quicker than him during pre-season testing. And Damon thought, bloody hell, where did that come from? He added, Frentzen had a reputation for being as fast as Michael Schumacher in their junior days, but even so, a full second was hard to take. One minute I'd been doing brilliantly in the Jordan, that's in 1998, and the next the whole thing had started to collapse on me. Of course, I was as determined as ever, but I could not get used to the dreadful tyres, those are the control bridgestones Matt mentioned that had a fourth groove added to the front tyres for this year. And then Damon picks up, with the thrill having gone, the motivation started to follow. This was going to be a long season. So Ben, you mentioned your personal delight at seeing Damon uh, in the thick of the points, even if he was a lap down. Was this a bit of a false dawn though? Yeah, 100% it was. Um, you know, Damon is kind of, by this stage, obviously quite tortured and conflicted uh, about his Formula One career and the way things are headed. Uh, he spoke about how no, he. I remember doing an interview with him about ten years ago. Actually, we did a, a, a special issue of Autosport on Damon Hill and him being Britain's underrated world champion. And we talked about ninety nine. And he he said he always had this idea that he wanted to stop Formula One before he turned forty. And uh, you know, at this point, he's he's nearly there. He's thirty nine. He has no desire to to do an Alonso or a Raikkonen and just keep grinding away. Um, but he said that he found you know as the years progressed, it got harder and harder. And you had to work harder and harder just to stand still. And of course, then you've got this period of massive change in Formula One, big changes to the cars. You suddenly got to adapt your driving in quite a, a drastic way. As you mentioned earlier, the cars are very skittish. Um, accidents are kind of never far away for everyone, pretty much at this point. And then you combine all of this with a driver who's who said subsequently in that book that, you know, the his own mortality and the fear of death played very much on his mind and he'd suppressed that for so long. And at some point he's just deciding, you know, this is, this is not really worth it. So he's kind of in a job where he's doing it because he's always done it and he's been quite successful, but he doesn't really want to be there anymore, but he hasn't quite managed to reconcile those two positions and work out how he extricates himself comfortably from that situation without hurting himself and damaging his family. I think it's quite telling that he used to, to, leave home for races, putting everything in order as if he was never going to come back. Uh, and this is a guy who isn't really prepared to keep rolling the dice endlessly. And at this point, I think you're just seeing, you know, he's going to turn up at a given race. And if things are going quite well from the off and he's feeling comfortable, it might work out okay. But if he's really got to push himself to the, the limit and maybe a bit beyond to kind of extract the pace from the car, he's probably not feeling that anymore. And I think this is why 99 turns out to be such a an awful year for for Damon Hill fans such as myself the irony is that I was the opposite of Ben at this point in 99 I'd been a Schumacher fan Coulthard fan Villeneuve fan through the mid 90s and I just thought Hill was this whiny overhyped people that pay, man that Patriots got behind out of a lack of imagination and never actually been any good and so I 
Ouch. Well, I was young. I was I was reveling in Heinz Held Friends and destroying him in 99 and just telling friends that it proves, proves Hill's rubbish. Lots of people have been very, oh, look, uh, Frenson was terrible at Williams. He'll be smashed by Hill at Jordan. And I was like, ha, look at this, look at this. It's, it's the other way around. So, yeah, I, I was loving Hill's you know, demise in 99 as an angry 18-year-old fan. And then I grew up and, um, you know, 20-odd years later, read Damon's book had a bit more kind of life awareness and actually now i, I look at his 99 season which huge sympathy and quite a lot of imagine uh, admiration as well i just think he just in retrospect that was just someone being an intelligent human being who was accidentally stuck in f1 at the time yeah that seems a fitting place to leave it for for imola 99 um as i say we will talk more about damon's struggles pretty much from any race um that we cover from this season and uh, we'll make sure we put Ben through the ringer a few more times so we've already done an hour and a half episode about BAR's 1999 so if I can suffer that you can talk about Damon's 99 <laughs> a bit more uh, this was but we will do more 99 episodes because it's such a fascinating year in F1 so many stories um good and bad so thanks to Ben and to Matt for joining us for this one good debut Ben I think we'll have you back in the future the end of the series is getting ever closer, so make sure you get your questions in about the V10 era of F1 by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or send an email to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. As we're recording this, I've seen the, the frequency of questions coming in, particularly to the email address, really start to, to ratchet up. So, um, yeah, make sure you get in and... Uh, you know, compete with everybody else who's trying to get a question in before we get to the end though we've got two more regular episodes to come and for the next one we're heading back to the 1995 canadian grand prix where jean Lacy famously took the only win of his career driving the number 27 ferrari made famous by canada's home hero gilles villeneuve Athletic.